Lord, we thank you uh, for um, your goodness. We thank you um, for the opportunity we have uh, week in and week out to continue to engage the word. We thank you, Lord, for the work of the Spirit that gives us any understanding at all. Um, as we sang, I need thee every hour. Um, uh, we, we do. <laughs> it's so much more than just a song. And uh, I pray that we would have that mindset, like, like Corey mentioned of David, where he didn't want people to be impressed with him. It was about people being impressed with this God. And the, the real root reason for that is because David's not that impressive on his own. And we're, we're just not that impressive. But our God is infinitely impressive. And uh, the opportunity we get each week to try to wrap our, our heads around that a little bit and our hearts is a privilege. And so I pray that we would see it as such. Lord, I pray uh, for Key's, uh, Key Walker's sister. Uh, she's gone into the hospital today. Um, sounds like a fairly um, serious situation. And so I pray that you would give uh, her uh, steadfastness and perseverance. I pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and insight and uh, give the family uh, comfort um, as they uh, work through that and make decisions. Um, I don't know all the details, but I'm, I'm very thankful that, that you do. And I pray that you would um, tend to that as, as you see fit. As we have um, this study tonight and then our last study for the semester next week, I pray that we would finish this semester well. Um, I'm thankful for um, the time we've had in our Old Testament and taking a little bit of a bigger bite of it has been a, uh, a blessing. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Second Samuel. We've got this week, which today's May 1st. For those of you who aren't aware, it is May. That got here pretty quick. And so May 1st and May 8th are our last two studies. We'll be looking at the life of David. Um, we, we started that last week, and we'll be doing that again uh, this week and next. And um, uh, we've kind of looked at some leadership portraits over the last, what, five, six weeks. We ended up spending longer in First and Second Samuel than expected, um, but, but I think it's, it's appropriate given, given what we've gotten to engage. And we looked first at, um, at uh, Samuel who was just marked by this movement of just listen and obey. What does God say? That's what I'm going to do. And that's what Samuel did. That's how he lived. That's what he was marked by. Tonight we're going to spend a few minutes looking at his final words and just how beautiful of a perspective that he had of God and how that affected the way that he lived. Then we looked at Saul, who was an impressive man, the kind of guy you'd look at and be like, man, that, he's tall, he's handsome, um, he's a good leader, um, and... Uh, He's going to speak and people are going to listen. But the problem with Saul was that he was not only impressive to others, but he was very impressive to himself, which ultimately led to him rejecting the Lord, him not listening to Samuel as the Lord spoke through Samuel, him taking um, liberties with things he shouldn't have taken liberties with, and ultimately really trusting himself more than he trusted Samuel, more than he trusted Saul, or more than he trusted Samuel, more than he trusted God, and and. Um, certainly more than he trusted David, and he, he sought to kill David a handful of times as well because of that. He was, he was overwhelmed by jealousy and rage at, at David's standing as, as he um, moved into that leadership position over Israel as a king. So tonight we're, we're looking at the life of David again, and, um, and next week, this week we're going to look at um, David's faith and David's God. Um, 
And then um, by the end of next week, we'll look at the sin and repentance that was needed in his life as well. Even though he was the greatest leader that Israel ever had, um, there was still sin. There was still need for repentance. We're going we're gonna to explore that some. Um, from a leadership perspective, how would you describe David? I already described Samuel and Saul. How, how would y'all describe David? Leading from the front, absolutely. Yeah, a servant. If Saul was impressive, what was David? Humble, not as impressive outwardly, for sure. The big thing we talked about last week was he was very impressed, impressed by God, um, just blown away at, at how good his God was. And it, it caused him to stand uh, and be steadfast and persevering in circumstances where the mightiest among men were, were cowardly um, because he was so impressed with God. Um, uh, Mark Dever, we, we mentioned his quote last week, that some people desire to impress you with themselves while others leave you impressed with their God. And I want to explain that that's not just about motive. It's about understanding. It's not just about, yes, I'm impressive, but I don't want you to be distracted by God, from God by my impressiveness. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is you're aware of how unimpressive you really are apart from God. And so if all of your impressiveness is completely owing to God, go ahead and just point to God and not yourself. It's a realization that, that God is to be revered far more than anyone should revere any of us. And so um, it's not just motive, it is understanding that, that drives that, wanting to leave others impressed by our God. Um, what is David's faith supposed to characterize? The faith of who? Israel, yeah. David's faith was supposed to characterize the faith, of the, the faith of the entire nation of Israel. And in David's confrontation with Goliath, what causes David to become enraged? God was mocked. Man, that enraged David. David, the least likely among the men there to stand and deliver the stone to Goliath's head, um, was enraged at how his, his heavenly father was mocked, and he would not have it. And he didn't just kill him with a rock. The kid's story leaves out the part where he chops his head off and delivers it up. Um, pretty remarkable story. Um, what was the point of that story, though? Where was David's confidence? In the Lord, yeah. And, and how do we know that? What did he say that shows us, okay, David's confidence isn't in his ability to sling rocks. David's confidence isn't in his experience necessarily as a shepherd, but his confidence is in the Lord. What did he say that, that led us to, to really believe that? Yeah, each time the Lord would deliver him from the lion, the Lord would deliver him from the bear. And so when he stood in front of Goliath, Goliath says, what is this that you bring dogs before me? Or what does he say? <laughs> he said, yeah, you un David said, you uncircumcised Philistine. And then, he, and then he's like, well, y'all are mocking me by putting David in front of me, essentially. And so he says, um, and David says, the Lord will deliver me. He doesn't say, you, don't have, you have no idea how bad I am. I may be small, but you don't know how bad I am. That wasn't what he said. he said. He said, the Lord will deliver me. So we know he trusted the Lord in that. So shift gears with me for a moment. That's what we covered last week. As we start tonight, I want to shift gears for a moment and consider how strange it must have been 
at all in the book of 1 Samuel, as we see this transition from a nation without a king to a nation with a king, how strange it must have been for a nation on planet Earth at that time, especially in this region and in this time of history, how strange it must have been for a nation to have no king. Um, in, in, the, in this book that I've pointed out, um, Dever notes, they must have been the strangest nation on earth. Then again, wasn't that the point? They left Egypt, survived in the wilderness, conquered Canaan, maintained their independence from other nations for centuries, all with a unified religion, and they did this um, with no king. How could this possibly happen? The point we're seeing in these books, the very absence of a king is what points to the presence of God. The very absence of the king is what points to the presence of God. That's the point of the books, um, Kings, and First uh, Samuel, First Second Kings, um, to teach us that, that God is his people's king. No other king, finally, can promise the complete and entire deliverance that God's people needed. The whole exercise of kingship in Israel was intended to be one long lesson on how no one but God himself can ultimately lead God's people. That's the whole point of this long drama, this long story that we read about the ups and the downs and the good king and the bad king, the whole point of the whole thing, them even asking for a king is to show that no one can finally lead God's people the way that they need to be led. And no one can finally promise the deliverance that God's people need that God alone can promise and deliver on. So um, I, I want to kind of sum that whole thing up by reading Samuel's um, farewell speech. And, and so look with me at 1 Samuel 12. I'm going to read verses 6 through 15, and what I want you to note is the history of the Lord's faithfulness. As I read through this, I want you all to take note of the history of the Lord's faithfulness. In a farewell speech, you've got either an opportunity to point at yourself or to point elsewhere, either to other people or to your God, and I want you all to see what Samuel does here in his farewell speech in 12 verses 6 through 5. Verse 6 says this, and Samuel said, this is 1 Samuel, and then we'll jump to 2 Samuel when we're done here. 1 Samuel 12, 6. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. This is before, right before Samuel is, is turning things over to Saul. He's the last judge of Israel. Saul is technically the second king of Israel, but the first in this series and it's a, it's, a, it's a time of change and transition for the nation because they're demanding a king, and God, in a sense, punishes their sin by giving them what they ask for. And this is the last thing he says. The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the land of Sisera, command, into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. 
when the Lord your God was your king. You said that when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. This picture of a man who's beginning his life, living his life, and ending his life with listen and obey. And the reason for that, look at God and all that he's done. Don't do it just as sheer willpower. Don't do it just because there's no better option. Do it because it is good and the Lord is trustworthy. And going all the way back, I mean, he traced them back to the, their entire history as a nation. Went all the way back and said, look at what God has done through this whole time. I mean, back when we were slaves in Egypt, he delivered us. And then even when, when the king of the Moabites was setting himself against us, he delivered us then, and he continues to deliver us. He's so patient with us. And that's what he's pointing to, this history of the Lord's faithfulness. Let us look at our history with such sobriety. I mean, think about your own. Think about your own story. That's the story of the nation of ethnic Israelites. But what, what about your story? I mean, the Lord has done, I mean, I, I, I'm not real big on like everyone has their own special story and we're all special snowflakes, but the Lord has done really amazing things in each of our lives. So that's better than a snowflake. The Lord's done remarkable things in each of our lives to a, a really significant extent. And so can we view our history with such sobriety and will that cause us to eagerly obey the Lord? Will that quicken us as, as we soberly recount what he's done and look at it and exhort one another as long as it's called today that none of us may fall away. Can we do that if we, if we have an understanding and a clear, um, a clear vision and sight of the goodness of our God and what he has done in each of our lives, looking only to him for the deliverance that we, like our forefathers, desperately need. God has been very good to each of us sitting here. And each of us need deliverance. We need to persevere to the end. We need to have those marks of the true saints. We need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And we need to put his glory on display. So we continue to look to him. Because he has only always been good to us. Um, as we're looking at leadership and how God puts things in place. Dever has a quote that says, Power has always been recognized as being dangerous. And yet authority is necessary in our lives. Was it the... Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Anyone know who said that? Anybody? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Wasn't that the, was that not the Orson Welles thing? The pig thing? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. No? I remember like three or four things from school, and that was one of them. So you're welcome. Go look it up. Um, so power has always been recognized as being a dangerous thing. Uh, we believe this, and it's affected our leadership structure. We don't put all of the power in one man, in a senior pastor, head, CEO of the church model. We, we, we believe and trust in what God says about the depravity of man, and that causes us to desire to disseminate power and let it be spread-loaded over a plurality of men so that there are more checks and balances in place and no one can run away like a power-hungry fool and lead others into distress and, 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 and angst and tragedy. So 
I want to break this little thing apart and look at it because we're going to be looking at this leadership of David. Power has always been recognized as being dangerous. How? I mean, I just mentioned some ways, but how is power dangerous? Did you look the quote up? Who was it? Was I even close? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Oh, John, yeah. Hmm. I have no idea why I remember that, but that's what I thought of when I saw that quote. So that said, power has always been recognized as being a dangerous thing. How can power be dangerous? What are some just obvious things? If it's misused, yeah, yeah. And what are some ways it could be misused? Lording over people. Yeah, serve your own agenda up. I've got the power, what do I want? Sure. Absolutely. Temptation with no accountability. Take a little bit here, a little bit there. Oh, you don't like that? Oh, I'm, I'm going to have you killed. I've got the power. So yeah, it can get corrupt quickly. Yet authority is necessary for our lives. How do we know that authority is a necessary thing in our lives? Say that what? Yes, the scripture tells us. And how does the scripture tell us? That authority is a necessary thing in our lives. Mm-hmm. Obey, submit, those are words that indicate authority. What are some authoritative structures that God's put into place in general? Parents? Is that what you said? Parents? I'm not going to ask you to say it again because I don't do that. <laughs> Parents. Parents are an authoritative stru- structure that God's put in place. Are they uh, perfect or fallible? Fallible. Yet are they any less authoritative? No. Okay, what are some other um, leadership structures God's put in place? Government, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, is the government perfect or fallible? Anybody? And does that make them any less authoritative? I guess it depends on how far they take it. Um, um, we won't go into all that. I'm going to move quickly forward because we're in Texas and people get crazy when we talk about that. And looking at the life of David, we find a well-acquainted, a man who's well-acquainted with power and authority as well as its limitations and temptations. That's what we're going to see in the life of David. That's why I ask you questions about power and, and temptation and, and why is authority necessary. Because in David, what we see is a guy who has a lot of power. He's well acquainted with the power. He's well acquainted with the authority that he's been placed in. He's well acquainted with those who are dependent upon him. Yet he's also well acquainted with the limitations and temptations of both those things. So that's what we're going to be looking at here for the next little bit. Um, first and Second Samuel, as well as First and Second Kings, have an ironic thesis, and this is it. This is it. The nation that Joshua led into Canaan was called to be God's distinct witness to the nations, but that nation rebelled and became an imitation of the nations it had displaced. So, what I want us to see—that ironic thing that happened there—sad irony, not funny irony. Um, for the first readers, then uh, the four books, first and second Samuel and first and second Kings for the first readers of those books, it would have been a call to repentance. It would have been a call to, to repent. Now, my question is, what is the specific repentance that they're being called to? Yeah. Stop rejecting God and submit. That's what this reading would have been. So as we're reading it, take that to heart. Stop rejecting God. And, and if there's, you may have a hundred areas where you're like, I'm not rejecting God. And then there's one area over here where you're like, I'm rejecting God. Stop rejecting God. And embrace the call that has been placed on your life to humbly submit to him and to trust him. Why? Because he's trustworthy. 
Not because it's just a good option, it's because it's best. He is absolutely trustworthy, far more trustworthy than any of us are. So the prime example of godly repentance in history in Israel's history is David. That's what we're gonna see. The prime example of repentance in Israel's history is David. The structure of 2 Samuel, you can go ahead and turn that way, is pretty simple. The big overview of 2 Samuel, the first 10 chapters are good, the second 10 chapters are bad, and the last four are kind of oddly miscellaneous, okay? Got the overview of 2 Samuel, first 10, good, second 10, bad, last four, miscellaneous. This week, our focus will be God's blessing and David's virtue, and we got to see them together. If we look at David's virtue apart from God's blessing, we misunderstand David's virtue. If we look at um, God's blessing without looking at David's virtue, we're not understanding the purpose and the point of that blessing that he has for the, the entire nation, not just for David. So, <clears throat> this week that's our focus. Next week we're going to look at David's sin and repentance. To understand God's blessing in David's life, we're going to look at David's last words. We already looked at Samuel's last words. Let's turn to the end of 2 Samuel, and I want us to start with David's last words, because I want us to understand how God's blessing resulted in, in um, David's virtue. And, and we can see that by looking at his, his very last words. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 through 4. <coughs> when the microphone's attached to your head and you turn away from it to cough, it just kind of goes with you. So sorry about that. 2 Samuel 23, verse 3 through 4, the last words of David. Just these two verses um, are a good summary to understand God's blessings in David's life. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, listen to this, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's what good leadership looks like. That's what virtue in leadership looks like. That's what the result of God's blessing in, a, in the life of a follower of him looks like. This imagery is really pretty. I'm going to read it again, and then we'll pick it apart a little bit. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Absolutely beautiful passage of scripture explaining how leadership can be a real blessing to God's people. What two images does God use here for good leadership? What are the two images that are mentioned? Morning light and what else? Particularly what? What after the rain? The brightness after the rain that makes the grass grow. So the two specifics are the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. That's the first thing. And then the second is the brightness after rain that brings forth the grass from the earth. There's two beautiful images here, and I'm going to, because I had a little bit of a different afternoon, I wasn't able to memorize a thing that I wanted to memorize, so I'm going to read it. 
um, in pages 272 through 273, um, explaining this imagery um, because it's really quite, quite beautiful imagery. Um, just a brief cameo. Imagine an old man's voice speaking these words after he had reigned for 40 years. That's what we're hearing here. David has reigned for 40 years. He's speaking these words. Imagine an old man's voice. Imagine what your grandfather sounded like and, and, and speaking with a wisdom. Imagine that. After reigning for 40 years, this is the last prophecy the prophet King David receives from the Lord. Toward the end of his reign, he provides an amazing image of ruling, ruling that is in righteousness and in the fear of God. How does David characterize such a ruler? With two striking images, such as ruler is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, and such a ruler is like the brightness after rain that brings forth the grass from the earth. Think about this pair of images. First, such a ruler is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Can you picture that? Like, actually try to picture that as I'm, as I'm reading this. Light itself is attractive to us. We are made and designed to be drawn to it. But here, David draws us not to just light, but to the light of morning. The warm light of afternoon and the mellow light of a summer's evening are also pleasant, but there's something unique about the light of morning. We all know that. It seems especially clear and straightforward, or so it feels after a refreshing sleep. Somehow it pierces whatever sleepiness remains and then reassures us, offering cheer and hope for another day. After all, this is not simply morning light, but the earliest freshest morning light, the light at sunrise, and a sunrise on a cloudless morning. Can you picture such a sunrise in your mind? Take a moment and find one in your memory. That is exactly what this king on his deathbed says authority well used is like. The thrill, the freshness, the sense of all you feel in that image will also be felt when we rule in righteousness and in the fear of God. It is true, isn't it? How splendid such leadership is to behold. How godlike. And he, say, he, he always says, refers to people as friend. It's very pastorly. He says, friend, have you considered the powerful witness you can have in wielding authority well? If you are a parent, do you understand the opportunity to have to show your children what God is like by the way you use your authority? You can teach them that authority, and God's authority in particular can actually be trusted and that he uses it for our good, husbands in your homes, friends at work, pastors, elders in your churches, those of you in positions of political authority, do you realize the opportunity you have to display a witness to God? When you rule over men in righteousness, when you rule in the fear of God, you are like the light at sunrise on a cloudless morning. And then he, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he says, my, my politician friends, God has set you in a place where you can, by your very life and the way you fulfill the responsibilities he has given you, powerfully demonstrate the character of God to all who can see. Praise God for the privilege all of us have when wielding whatever authority we have been entrusted with. But then David uses a second image, such as a ruler is like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Do you know what, that, what he means? It's another picture of a wonderfully attractive brightness. We like brightness. So we're speaking positively when we remark that someone brightens up a room. The brightness is then heightened by a contrast. It's a brightness after rain, he says. Then he adds this one further description. It is a brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. This last phrase is what really distinguishes this second picture from the first one. The camera turns, as it were, from the sky to the ground. We're no longer looking at the splendor of the thing itself, 
we're looking at its glow on the little green shoots sprouting up due to the brightness after the rain. In other words, a good ruler produces good in others. He is beneficent and he is fruitful. It's probably good I didn't have the time that I wanted this afternoon to try to memorize most of that because that, that's really a really good explanation of the beauty of those two verses. A good ruler produces good in others, he has been efficient, and he's fruitful. That's, that's what good ruling is. And that, I'm not just talking about elders and churches. I'm talking about any area where you have an opportunity to exercise any authority whatsoever. You can bless people in that manner. It's very, very significant. An outline of these things that we, this kind of fruitfulness and this kind of benefit from such leadership, an outline of these things in David's life is as follows. Um, in chapter one of Second Samuel, David executes the Amalekite who killed Saul. Saul was trying to kill David, an Amalekite steps in, kills Saul. David executes that Amalekite. Why is that significant? Yeah. 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 It's it's remarkable. I mean, it, it's a, it's a remarkable thing for him to come in so low as to say, "No, you were wrong in killing him. Even though he wanted to kill me, you were wrong in killing him." Because there's something that God set up here that you asked for that is necessary. And so it shows a certain level of character there, that, that brightness that, that we saw in the imagery in, in, uh, second, in, the, uh, in the second Samuel there. Um, in chapter... Yeah, yeah, respecting the office. That's a good way of saying it. Chapter 5 records two really significant victories for David. I'm going to bullet point you some, some high watermarks for David. Chapter 5 records two significant uh, victories and I'm going to read chapter 5 aloud, but I want us to see in this that David's power is consolidated and he's able to protect the nation from outside attack. Um, we're, I'm sorry, we're not going to read 5 aloud, but I would encourage you to read it because chapter 5 shows these, pretty two, these two pretty big victories um, where, where the power is consolidated. And what happens is he gets himself into a place in leadership where he is able to pr- rightly protect the nation of Israel from outside attack. In chapter 6, um, we see David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Why is that significant? The presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord. It, that, that's what the Ark indicates. Now, where was the Ark? Yeah, remember the Dagon thing and the Philistines taking it? I mean, the, the, it's been gone and now it's being brought back. The, David is putting things into order. He's kind of cleaning up house here and it's a good thing. Um, chapter 7 presents uh, God's great promise to David to establish his royal line forever, which is followed by a prayer of gratitude. Chapter 8 appears to be the apex of David's greatness as victory after victory is recounted against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, and others, and all are defeated and become subject to Israel's law. Chapter 9 describes David's kindness to a grandson of Saul and a son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. And finally, in chapter 10, the story of, is the story of David defeating the Aramaeans and the Ammonites. David rules in righteousness and the fear of God. I would encourage you, seriously, take the time to read through this book. David rules in righteousness and the fear of God, and he's a good ruler. 8.6 summarizes 
um, his ruling well. It says, the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. As you hear me talking about what a good ruler David was and what an example he sets for any of us who are in any sort of authoritative position, hear me saying all of that only exists because of the goodness of David's God. As it says in 8.6, the Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. If you want victory everywhere you go, I would encourage you to look to the Lord for it. That's what that verse is encouraging. Don't try to just establish it on your own. As bad and whatever as you think you are, you cannot establish it on your own. And again in verse 15 of that same chapter, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all of his people. That's the result of God's blessing in your life. That kind of virtue is the result of a blessing from God where he, as it says here, reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. To rule in the fear of God means that when you rule, you never forget that you will give an account to God for how you treat those who are weaker than you or who are dependent upon you. Hear that. Because I believe that everyone sitting here has been entrusted with some pretty remarkable things. We've each been entrusted with some gifts, some power and work of the Holy Spirit, um, abilities, um, opportunities. Uh, and in each of those things, if you're ruling rightly in the fear of God, you will never forget that you'll give an account to God for, for how you treated and how you walked with and how you cared for and how you helped those who are either weaker than you or dependent upon you. This should cause us to be really serious about our responsibilities. I mean, th these are the kinds of realities biblically that, that help me to be quickened in my spiritual disciplines because it's not just, a, it's, we're not just going through motions here. There are eternal things at stake here. Um, Dever closes with, the gifts that God gives us, he gives us for serving other people, for caring for our families, for building up the church, for blessing our cities. They should never be regarded as ornaments for drawing attention to ourselves. Do you hear that? The gifts that God gives us should never be regarded as ornaments for drawing attention to ourselves. They're not for show but for work. Therefore, purpose to bring God glory in the way you employ your gifts. Use yourself for God's good. That means we should pray that God would cultivate in us attitudes of humility and gratitude for every good thing he has entrusted to our care. Contrary to what we might expect, taking our gifts for granted will encourage pride in us. Have you ever thought about that? Taking your gifts for granted isn't a humble thing. If someone says, man, you're really gifted in this, why aren't you using that for the building up of the body and for edification? You're like, nah, no, I, I, don't, I don't want any attention. That's not, that's, that's not humility. That's gonna cultivate pride in you because if that gift isn't something you designed, it's something that God designed. And if God designed it, he designed it for use. He designed it to bless the body. God's very, very particular about those things. He's so particular that in Ephesians he says, um, even in the words you use, like let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Like not even a single word you speak 
is to be used out of order because God's using all of it for kingdom good, for his glory, and for the edification of the body. And so if you have gifts, which if you're a professing believer following Jesus, you have gifts, by not using them, you're cultivating a pride in yourself. It seems counterintuitive, I know, but, but that's what it is. We have to use them because they're not our own. If we sit on them, we're, we're, we're holding on to them as if we have a power over them that somehow supersedes God's power over them. So if you're not serving others in any capacity, I mean, there's so many opportunities to serve. But if you're not serving others in any capacity, I would encourage you to be careful that while you may seem like you're trying to be quiet or humble or, or just not in the, in the spotlight, to be careful because it's very likely you're cultivating pride by not using those gifts because they were designed by God and his intention for them is specific. So we should pray that God would cultivate in us attitudes of humility and gratitude. Pausing and enumerating them, our gifts, will encourage our hearts to be grateful and to be humble before God. That's, that's something we've seen in the life of David in the first 10 chapters. Grateful and humble. A lot of times we think that grateful and humble can mean timid and quiet, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Grateful and humble may be very bold and very out front. I mean, David was grateful and humble. Man, he got out there and he did what was needed and he said what needed to be said and he led well and he fought well and he did all of it in faith. It was, I mean, remember Romans 14, anything that's done outside of faith is sin. That was tr that's true for us today. It was true for David then. And so he's moving forward in all these things. So go ahead and turn over to 2 Samuel 7, <clears throat> chapter 7. I, I just want to look at one of these in closing. We've got just a few minutes. Um, but I want you to see God's great promise to David to, to, David, to establish a royal line forever. Because, again, it shows us, like it did in his last words, what the result of God's blessing is for a person who is leading in a virtuous manner. Chapter 7. We'll, we'll close with reading this aloud. Now then the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house, question mark, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all, my, all the people of Israel that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. That reminds us right there that God makes some men's names great. If, if a man has a great name, it's good God does that sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, 
so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You're going to make me a house? The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That sounds a lot like John. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. See, discipline, but not a departure of love. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You see such gratitude there. You see a guy who's seeing God rightly. He's not just going to God for what he needs. He hears this from Nathan and he says, Lord, who am I that you've brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself uh, from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. That's a really good response. When God says, this is what I'm gonna do, it's good for us not to say, well, have you thought about like option B and C? No, it's good for us to do exactly what David just did here and say, you do what you do, Lord. I'm your humble servant. Do what you are saying you're gonna do. Let your word go forth. Let your purposes be fulfilled. You established for your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. I mean, I want you to see this. God is saying to David, your offspring, those under your name are going to be great. And David's saying, oh, this is going to cause your name to be great, God. He's not worried about his own name and his own progeny, his own lineage. He's focused on the offspring of the Lord still. Your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. It takes courage to pray this kind of prayer to God. And now, O Lord God, you are God. 
and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless this house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. My prayer for us as we read these things is that that would be our perspective on our God, that we would see what he has said, we would see the history of how he's blessed us, how he's seen us through things, that we would see his promises in the word and the way that he challenges us. We would see the things that he has tasked us with. We would see the responsibilities that he's given us and we would respond by saying, you alone are God. And if you say these things are gonna happen, I'm gonna trust you for that goodness. I'm gonna trust you when it doesn't seem like these things are happening. I'm gonna trust you when I sin and just step off into the ditch and know that your purposes will not be thwarted and your word will go forth as you see fit. And I will repent and I will turn to you. And this will always be, no matter how great you make my name, it will be more about your name. These, there's some pastors. I mean, there's pastors that if I said, who are the first pastors that come to mind for you? It may not be even your own pastors because God has made some men's names great. Like a John Piper. That kind of being known can be dangerous if that man ever forgets that God's name is greater. There's so many and there's some whose names, whose, there are some men whose names have been made great, but they're not acknowledging God more than themselves. And it's going to be to their detriment, and it's going to be to the detriment of the flock that they're shepherding. There's danger in that. So I just want to encourage us. These first 10 chapters are good, and they're a good reminder for us of how good our God is, and how true he is to his promises and to his purposes and how we should be completely dependent upon him no matter what our stature, how great we are, how high we are, how low we are. He is infinitely good, period. And he is trustworthy. So we should listen and obey, repent where it's needed and follow him wholeheartedly. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I'm thankful, uh, thankful for your word. There are so many things in your word that I would just not come up with on my own. <laughs> and it is humbling each day as I look at how deep your wisdom is. Lord, I'm thankful for David. I'm thankful that in our history, as, as, the, as your people, our story is the story of a people. And as we look back on our story, I'm thankful for a guy like David, who was a man after your own heart, who you blessed immensely, whose name you made great, so that he might show us the difference between leading well and leading poorly, so that he might show us the abundant blessing in leading well and loving others rightly through that leadership and the fear that we should have of the detriment of not leading well. Lord, I pray that uh, in each opportunity that we have, whether it's parents here, whether it's teachers, whether it's someone who's discipling someone younger, whether it is uh, in, in our jobs. Um, each of us have opportunities to lead in a way that reflects the goodness and, and the fear of the Lord. I pray that you would help us in those things. Guide us. We love you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.